Oh, it is good to be here with you this morning, isn't it? I was talking to Bob and Lynn as they were coming in this morning, and we were talking about how we may need to just go outside and have worship this morning. And I told them, I said, you know, yesterday was a great day for a motorcycle ride, and I told Leanne that. When I told Leanne, she just looked at me, so we went for a car ride. I want to try an experiment, and I want you to bear with me on this. If you pull for a college team of any sport in the state of Louisiana, I want you to raise your hand and keep them up. Okay. Now, if you pull, now keep your hands up. I want you to look around at the sprinkling of hands. And if you pull for a college team from the state of Alabama, raise your hand. Okay. That's about what I expected. It's kind of overwhelming when all the Alabama and Auburn people and Huntingdon and Birmingham Southern and Sanford and Jacksonville State and USA and... Who? Wyoming. <laughs> we'll count you with the Louisiana folks. <laughs> I wanted to kind of give some kind of visual representation, and I want you to kind of hang on to that, because what's happening in our scriptures today, that rep visual representation allows us some kind of image of what's going on. We're going to, our Old Testament passage today is taken from Isaiah chapter 55. And before we get to the reading of that passage, what I would like to do is kind of lay some of the groundwork for us so we understand a little better about what's happening because that's critically important to understand. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah, the prophet, is working and living in the like 700s BC, BCE. And he is working and prophesying to the people of Israel about the coming annihilation at the hands of the Assyrian army. And it occurs. And Isaiah is a witness to this. And then after the Assyrian army annihilates Israel and exports lots of people, there's about 200 years of silence in the book of Isaiah. From chapter 39 to chapter 40, there's about a 200-year gap where God is seen as quiet. In this 200-year gap, a lot has happened. The Assyrian Empire has fallen. The Babylonian Empire has risen up. They have conquered, defeated, destroyed, annihilated, laid waste to the city of Jerusalem, and looted the temple. And they have exiled all the wealthy, all the powerful, to parts all over the Babylonian Empire. They have scattered 
the exiles. And in the late, mid to late 500s BCE, God raises up a prophet. And we call that prophet Isaiah, the second Isaiah. And from chapters 40 to 55, this second Isaiah is living and working, prophesying. And what is happening is that the Babylonian Empire is beginning to decline and the Persian Empire is rising up under King Cyrus. And this Isaiah, the second Isaiah, is looking at all this political circumstance and he sees God at work. God is about to do something new. And the people who have been exiled, who have been living in darkness, are about to be called into the light, and they're going to return home. This is God's doing. But there was a lot happening. The people in exile had been living in exile for a number of years. They had been living in a, in a, a circumstance, in an environment, and in a culture that was not their own. Their religion, their center of religion, the temple had been destroyed, looted. Their capital city had been razed. The walls had been crushed. And the armies of the Babylonian Empire had marched through. They now found themselves in a Babylonian culture. Scattered in large cities with huge, enormous temples, ziggurats, stepped pyramids. It was an impressive sight for the Israelites. And over time, they began to forget. They began to forget their old religion, the one true God, they began to find themselves in a wilderness that was quite unlike anything they had ever been through before. So they were dealing with not just forgetting, but there were people who were um, rebelling against this enormous culture that surrounded the Israelites, these exiles. Peter Berg is a, is a sociologist of religion, and he, he talks about some interesting pieces that's happening at this time. And one of the things he really talks about is this whole notion of a cognitive surrender. And what he is referring to is this idea that the exiles were a small minority around it were, were kind of within this huge, enormous culture that was unlike anything that they believed or practiced. They were a cognitive minority. Not only was their population a minority, but the way they believed, the way they practiced, the way they had faith, their culture was a minority. And what Peter Berg talks about is that these people in this exile had three ways to respond. Over time, they could surrender their cognition, their beliefs, their practices, their faith 
their religion, their culture, to adapt and to adopt the prevailing culture. And that was happening to the exiles. They were living, they were adapting, they were adopting a culture that was drastically different from their own. This was a paganistic culture. And they were beginning to forget cognitive surrender of their own God, the one true God, their own religion, their own faith, their own belief system, their own practices, everything about their culture they were forgetting. They were surrendering it over to the predominant culture of Babylon. Another way to, uh, to adapt or not to adapt is to, re- is to rebel, to defy. But it's really hard to defy the prevailing culture when it is so dominant and you are such a minority. Think about the, Louisiana, the, the state of Louisiana college supporters that raised their hands in this room. Think about if we were to cheer instead of raising our hands, if we were to cheer our chants, our, if we were to sing our, our songs, which one would we hear? The Alabama songs or the Louisiana and Wyoming songs? (laughs) My guess is we'll hear a lot of Alabama and Auburn. And those Louisiana voices, those voices from the Israelite exiles would have been squelched and squashed. Because it's hard to get any kind of traction when you're isolated. The other option that was taking place in this Babylonian exile was that the, the people in exile were, were trying to put up, prop up, if you will, um, practices and beliefs that would, that would be accepted by the dominant culture. They were trying to blend the Israelite culture, to the Babylonian culture in any way they could. But they had to be pleasing, at least acceptable, to the Babylonian culture. These were the three ways that the people of the the exile had to adapt to this wilderness. And it's in this world when people were defying and people were adapting and people were forgetting the one true God, the one true religion, their faith, that God raises up Isaiah. And in chapter 40, he starts out with, O comfort, O comfort, my people. And in chapter 55, we see what that comfort begins to look like. I invite us to look at this scripture from Isaiah chapter 55. It is printed in your bulletin. Here now, a reading of the Old Testament. It says, Ho! It's an unusual way to begin. But really, what it means is, Hey! Or, or look here. Look here, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See? I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And may God bless the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Isaiah is raised up in this world where people are forgetting God. They have forgotten the temple. They have forgotten the capital city. They have forgotten their practices of religion. How do they worship? How do they praise the glory of God, the one true God? That was a dangerous temptation. There were others who said, we can adapt. We can bring in our own, some of our own, our own practices and our own beliefs, and we'll just meld them with the Babylonian beliefs. And there were others, very few, who would defy, who would rebel against the broader dominant culture, and they would fail. If we begin to kind of get our hands around this whole time frame, this history of the Israelite people, it's a miracle and an act of God that they are even able to come out of exile. That there was anything left. But what this scripture tells us, what Isaiah reminds us, is that God never leaves his people. God is always present, always providing, always sustaining God's people to maintain that relationship with the one true God the relationship he calls us into. Even when we forget, and even when we fight against everything, just because it's defiance, and even when we make the mistake and, and, and bite into the temptation that we can meld things together and we can find some way forward and adapt the culture in us, God is present. And God shows through this abundant grace that God pardons us, that God reaches out to us and invites us back in, reminds us through prophets like Isaiah, reminds us, reminds us through the scriptures of Isaiah that we can 
we can. And we are invited. We are desired. We are wanted by God to partake of his richness, of his glory. And so he reminds us of what that's about. He reminds us of this relationship that was started with Abraham and and this promise of a child, this promise of, of descendants as numerous as the stars. And he reminds us Just as Moses was on the the banks of the Jordan River and was able to look across into the promised land, that yes, God's promises are real and God is steadfast and will keep his covenant with his people. Even when his people forget, even when his people begin to defy, push against the culture, And even when his people try to meld our faith with a faith that is not God's. It's a wilderness. We certainly find ourselves, we find the the exiles in Isaiah chapter 55 as being in between. They are in the middle of nowhere between yesterday of when they remembered and when they practiced and tomorrow of what will be. They don't know how to get there. They have forgotten why they are there. And they have forgotten where they're going. But God is graceful. And God is gracious. And he sends his his prophets to remind us. We find ourselves in very similar wilderness today. When the church, if you look at any social research... The Christian church is being pushed further and further to the margins of society. We can find ourselves in the same boat as the exiles. How do we adapt when the church, when our faith is becoming a minority, has become a minority, is a minority? How do we adapt? What do we adopt? What's important? What's our priority? What do we need to be reminded of? Have we surrendered? Have we forgotten? Have we defied everything that we can defy? Have we melded all that we can meld to adapt, to be accepted? God sends his messenger, his prophet, to remind us that God is the center that we are called to be this community of faith, called out of the world, called out of the culture, to not be part of the culture, but to proclaim the good news to this culture, our culture, our wilderness, that Jesus Christ has revealing the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. That's the center. That's our priority. That's our responsibility. That's our call. And that's our gift as the church. And just as these beautiful shawls offer a tangible touch of God's love and grace 
through God's community of faith. We are called to offer the world around us, the culture around us, even when it doesn't agree with us, even when we don't agree with it, to offer tangible evidence, a proclamation that God is gracious, that God's grace and forgiveness and love is out of abundance. Even when we're broken, when we're lost, we're in the middle of nowhere. When you're an LSU fan or a Tulane fan in a room of Auburn and Alabama folks. God sends his reminder to tell God's people that God is the center. And this relationship that we have with God is our priority. And it's available to everyone. Auburn, Alabama, Jacksonville State, LSU, Tulane, USA, Wyoming, Oklahoma State. I didn't forget you, Susan. Florida State, Florida. It's available to us all. And that is the good news that Isaiah proclaims to the exiles. It's the good news that we proclaim today to the world, to the wilderness. So today and through Lent and through all of our times together, let's remember who we are who has called us, and to what purpose. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.